One thing we're doing, we're thinking about God's promises from week to week, no matter what series we're involved in. We're thinking of God's commitments. God sees you and sympathizes with you. He deals gently with you and he loves you. He changes you and chooses you. Good's ahead of you. Good's guaranteed to you. God gives you the power to persevere. God gives you the power to be content. One way we're focusing on this on a weekly basis is we're having some testimonies. So we're going to follow along today. We're on God Changes You. Randy is going to come up and he's going to talk a little bit about what it means and what it means to him. Being the seventh of eight children, my parents were a little older than uh, most of my peers, most of my friends in my friend group. And um, in my little middle-class neighborhood that I lived in, we were indeed the most religious family uh, in my friend group, uh, in that we went to church every Sunday, I went to catechism and all those things, and and, uh, this was a source of pride for me as a younger person. Although I was aware growing up that of this idea of trying hard and giving up, which I did over and over and over on probably a daily, if not hourly basis at times. I did my best to overcome this um, with religious activities. As a young man or young boy, I served as an altar boy at the church, and my dad was the maintenance and custod- maintenance man and custodian at, at the church and affiliated school, so I, I went regularly to help my dad uh, with chores, moving snow, scrubbing floors, all those things, hoping that this would uh, would make up for what I was pretty sure of were my shortcomings. I knew all about them, and I was pretty sure he knew about them too. Uh, when I got into my mid-teens, I was del- definitely a lot more in the try-hard, um, a lot more in the give-up part of, of that cycle than in the try-hard. And once I entered college, there was very little try-hard anymore. It was pretty much full-blown um, give-up. Uh, I continued to regularly attend church, and I was pretty much, as I said, in the full-fledged give-up mode, but still going to church every Sunday, just in case. Uh, I finished college, married my high school sweetheart, and moved away to graduate school at the University of Kentucky. I, it was about three or four year, years later, I found myself in the midst of what was a miserable divorce. Um, it was then that God showed up. And he showed up in the most unexpected way. It was my secretary. Her name was Lynn. Her name is Lynn, actually. And, and it was uh, when I was at, on faculty at the University of Iowa. And she approached me and, and you know, she... I really thought she was kind of weird, to be honest with you. Um, she, you know, I was like, what's up with this gal? And so I just kind of blew her off. And this went on for a couple months, but she persisted. And she continued to remind me that, that God loved me. And at first it was like, like I said, you're kind of weird, you know? Now remember, I was the most religious kid, but I had no idea what she was talking about. Finally, I relented, and I just walked in her office one day, and I said, listen, I am an absolutely miserable person. And she gently said to me, I know. I've been watching you ever since you walked through the door. She said, for some reason, and she said, I know why. She said, you know, God has prompted me to tell you that he loves you. Slowly, and it was slowly, this began to, to change my perspective about her, 
that she wasn't weird. She was just really knew who he was. And she wanted me to know who he was. And this slowly also changed my perspective to actually look at him because in the midst of the try hard and give up part of, of the cycle, I wasn't about to look at him. But I was still, I want to remind you, I was still diligently attending church every Sunday throughout this entire time, but it was truly out of obligation in the hopes that I could meet some friends, really, because I was lonely, I was miserable. Fast forward about 18 months, I moved home to Sioux Falls. I met Lisa. A little while later, we got married, and we began to church for, or search for a new church home. Lo and behold, Pat, Jaycott, told us about this place. And in September of 1995, we decided to call this our home. When I first began to think about and marinate in this message of grace, I was in total disbelief. Because there seemed to be no way that I could change by leaning into a growing and increasing awareness of God's lack of condemnation. I was pretty sure that I needed to be punched in the nose and slapped around a little bit. And more importantly, where was this try hard piece of the equation? Slowly, I began to practice, my ga- practice fixing my gaze on him and glancing at my circumstances and glancing at my behaviors. Little did I know how much God was changing me from the inside out. Lisa and my kids will agree, I am a work in progress. <laughs> and Lana, Lana might agree, too. <laughs> She's really just one of my kids. <laughs> Um, but I am learning to be more gentle with myself and with others because he is changing me in ways that I never expected and through means that make no sense in most religious circles. He changes me by reminding me that in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. He is risen. I am forgiven. Happy Easter. Thanks, Randy. We're in the middle of a series, uh, Lost in Translation, and we're looking at words that might have altered meanings over the years. We're going to consider, and we have been considering, uh, words lost in translation, translation that are associated with the Easter season. We've been looking at sin and gospel, judgment and salvation. We'll continue to look at words lost in translation next week, and we'll do so by considering the dark side. We'll look at hell, and we'll look at Satan. And next week, we'll look at hell. And what we'll need to consider is we'll address the question, if hell is so important, why is it that Paul never mentions it? Not once. So that's what we'll consider as we look at that. But today, we're thinking about salvation. During the Easter season, we think of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and we rightly think about how his sacrifice allows us to experience salvation. And that's what we're going to consider, some questions related to salvation, actually three of them. What does salvation mean? So when the Bible uses the word, we think of being saved from sinful acts or saved from punishment. Is that what 
the Bible is pointing to when it talks about salvation. So we'll look at what does it mean, and we'll, we'll also ask the question, why is it necessary? And then we'll finish up with how do we experience it? What do we have to do to experience the salvation? Let's think about what salvation means. Salvation means literally liberation from the authority of a hostile power. And that's when you think of salvation, you're being saved from being controlled by a power that is hostile, that is not friendly, that doesn't have your best interest in mind. And that's what salvation means, to be rescued out from under this hostile power. Paul described his and our problem in this way. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for if I do not do what I want, because I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And he goes on to describe what he experienced. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Anytime you fix a problem, you've got to accurately diagnose it. What is the problem here? How would you assess Paul's problem? What if you heard somebody say similar things? I don't understand my actions. I don't do what I want to do. I do the thing I don't want to do. What would you say that person's problem is? They said, you know what? I have the desire to do what is right, but I really can't pull it off. Oh. They said, you know what? I don't do the good I want to do. Instead, this thing I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. We would talk about, you know, I'll tell you what, you have a self-control problem, or you have a will problem, or you have an intellect problem, or you have an emotional problem. We, we would indicate some kind of problem like that. Paul diagnoses the problem, and I don't think anyone in the history of religion had diagnosed the problem the way Paul did. And here's what he said. Um, no longer, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. You know what he's saying? It's really not me. It's sin living in me. And when he talks about sin here, it's not really as an act, but as a power. And Paul, it's, it's he's saying, okay, I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do, and the reason that I do that is because there is a power living in me that's moving me in that direction. He says, um, now if I do not, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. You know what he says? Sin is the slave master. And he, as its slave. Again, before we solve a problem, We've got to accurately diagnose it. And what Paul says, the problem with mankind is, it's not necessarily the choices that they make. It's the power they serve. And sin then, biblically, is a controlling power, more than a controllable choice. When Paul talks about sin being a master, he's not talking about an act, he's talking about a power. Salvation moves us then from being controlled by the power of sin 
to being controlled by the power of God. That's what salvation is. It's being moved from the authority of a hostile power, sin, not an act, a power, over to being under the authority of a loving, benevolent power. You might look at it this way. Salvation moves us from the power of sin over to being under the power of God. That's what salvation does. From a hostile power to a benevolent one. Um, what gives sin its power? This is what's surprising. And we talk about it, it seems that this doesn't make sense, but it's really what Paul says. What gives sin its power? And Paul would say, it's the law. It's what he says. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin, if you were to define the power of sin, if somebody would say, what is the power of sin? What would you, what would come to your mind right away? I guarantee it wouldn't be law. That's what Paul says. The power of sin is law. And he doesn't just say it here. He says it elsewhere. Look what he says. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Where do sinful actions come from? Why do we do wrong things? Hateful things, immoral things, angry things. Where do sinful actions come from? They come from sinful desires. Would you agree? We do sinful things because we have sinful desires. We have sinful passions. Okay, here's a question. Where do sinful passions come from? Upbringing? Addictions? What he says. Sinful passions are aroused by the law. Paul talks about sinful passions. You know what sinful passions are? Uncontrollable, uncomfortable, unacceptable desires. You understand that, don't you? I understand that. Unacceptable, uncontrollable, uncomfortable desires. Those are what sinful passions are. Um, what's surprising is Again, where they come from, sinful passions are aroused by the law of God. You know what he's saying? If you put commandments over on top of a person and say, do these and you'll be blessed, don't do these and you'll be cursed, you know what ends up happening? You'll do more right things? No, that's not what happens. You'll end up doing more wrong things. You know what? It stimulates sinful passions that lead to sinful actions. That's what Paul points out, and I don't think anyone. Jesus understood it because, well, that's what Jesus said. Out of the heart comes things. Didn't he say that? Out of the heart comes things. The desires lead to the deeds. Um, but it's, it really is strange. It is something like discovering a fire a fireman who's guilty of arson. You're not supposed to do that. A fireman's supposed to put out the flames, not, not spread them. Law spreads the flames. It's supposed to control. I'm going to say that again. 
law and commandments spread the flame they're supposed to control. Or to put it in another way, commandments stimulate the very behaviors they prohibit. Hmm. Hmm. What does salvation mean? Liberation from the authority of a hostile power. Liberation from slavery to sin and the law that empowers it. Think of another question. Why is salvation necessary? Why is salvation necessary? Um, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Anybody here that's never sinned? <laughs> Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So I guess our issue is not that we do sinful acts, but we are, well, you know what, you know what the issue is? We understand slavery to sin as a power. Um, salvation is necessary because slavery is a reality. We need to be saved from the power of sin because we're under it. And we're going to talk about how that's experienced, but in terms of the problem, you know why we need to be saved? Because we've been slaved. We need to be saved because we've been slaved. That's what Paul says. I ran into this thing, and I really like this. It's, it, it's kind of a picture of people need to be saved, and then it answers the question, when? Let's fill in the blanks. People need to be saved when through their own fault or through some superior power, they come under the control of someone else. Being thus controlled, they have lost their freedom to implement their will and decisions. If you're under the power of something, and that power dictates to you what you are to do, you really don't have free will to implement your own will. That's what it means to be controlled by someone. People need to be saved when their own resources are inadequate to deal with that other power, that superior power. And they can only gain their freedom by the intervention of a third party. People need, and again, it's, this is just a definition of what kind of person needs to be saved. With respect to spirituality, I'll ask a question. Does that represent you and me? It seems a little strong, doesn't it? But according to Paul, this is our state. This is what everyone deals with. We've come under a superior power, being thus controlled. We really can't implement our will and decisions. We, our resources are inadequate to push this power off, and we can only gain our freedom by the intervention of a third party. And that's where Jesus comes in. His death, burial, and resurrection, somehow, and we'll talk about it, it breaks the control. It can I'll need to say that it can break the control and the power of sin and move us from being under the power of sin to being under the power of God. Our spiritual problem is not 
that we do sinful things. Our spiritual problem is slavery to the power of sin. Not the absence of self-control. That's not our problem. Our problem is the presence of sin control. That's what Paul would say. Okay. Salvation is liberation from a hostile power. Why is it necessary? We need to be saved because we've enslaved. We've come under the power of somebody, something that is greater than us. Let's talk about the last question then. How is salvation experienced? We'll say three things, and they kind of sound the same. Uh, number one, believe in Jesus and hold on to his word. Here's what he says. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. These individuals Jesus talked to were Jews at the time who believed that he was the Son of God. Jesus said, I've been sent by my Father. They said, okay, I buy it. I believe it. I see what you do. I see the miracles. I'm in. I believe it. And then Jesus said to those who believed, well, people like you. He's talking to people like you. I would dare say, if you're here this morning, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. What do you need to do to experience salvation? Is that enough? Here's what Jesus said. If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know what he said? Make room in your mind for his teachings. Listen to them. Read about them. Make room. Devote some space. Think about them. And this is what he said. God's word is very unique. God's word doesn't just tell you what to do. That's not just informative. God's word actually changes things. It's performative. It changes the way you think. And what Jesus is saying, that if you believe in him, and if you, and you're doing that as well this morning, if you make room in your thoughts for him, his teaching will change you. That's one reason why we're, so, we're doing promises on a weekly basis. The most powerful thing God tells you about is not his commandments. It's his commitments. And as we make room for his commitments in our mind, that's why we're going to talk about one a week, we're going to have people talk about them. As we reflect on his commitments, they become more known. More, we, we are more aware of them. And this is going to happen. If you gradually become more aware of God's commitments, it will change you. It is. It will. It's the way, it's the way it works. If these individuals, Jesus said, if they make room for his word, it's going to change them. I'll say the same thing to you. Make room for his word, especially his promises. 
especially his promises and his commitments. Um, and the truth will set you free. Belief is a process, it seems, not an event. Now, I want to be careful here. Be careful. Belief is something that you do when somebody gives you good news. That's what gospel is, good news. And the good news is Jesus came so that you might be rescued from the power of sin and transmitted, transferred to the power of God. That's good news. And so belief is believing that. And sometimes belief is an event. In the early church, they would hear and the event that marked their belief was baptism. Some of us have been baptized. Some of us young, some of us, when we came to a point of hearing the good news, baptism was a very significant juncture in the life of a first century person. I think more significant than it is today. What happened in the first century if you were a Jew and were baptized? Not only your friends would see it, those who would not look kindly on you believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And then if you did get baptized and you were in a Jewish community and you wanted to go to the synagogue and you went to the synagogue all the time then, that was the school that your kids went to. That's where you met others. That's where you did business. That's where you met friends. That was the center of your social life. If you got baptized in the first century, you know what happened? You'd go to the synagogue and they said, Hey, hey, you got baptized, didn't you? <laughs> Sorry, you're not welcome here anymore. Would you imagine then that then in the first century being baptized, that had some sting to it. And you know what you'd have to do in order to find a group that would accept you, you would go to a Christian circle. And today, baptism still marks, and it's still something we're commanded to do. You believe in Jesus and you get baptized. But some of the push from being baptized at an event, I don't think it carries today. There's other events that mark belief. Some of us have heard the message, and we might have come to a place of receiving Christ into our heart. Somebody said, do you ask Jesus into your heart? And some of us have had a point in time where we've said, Jesus, I ask that you'd come into my heart. No matter what kind of event, or if there hasn't been an event, it seems that belief is a process that can begin with an event, but it has to move on from there. It can't, it, it's not just about the event. It's about making room in our mind for the words. It's about doing stuff like this and us listening to one another. And what does it mean to you? And what is that commitment? And as we make room, it's the process of learning what he says that changes us. Um, Jesus said to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. Receive in the first century, he, when Jesus says many received him, it wasn't received him in prayer, it was treating him like a rabbi. That's what it meant. To receive Jesus in the first century was to take your place at his feet and say, I'm going to let you tell me how to think about God. And you would sit at the feet of a rabbi, and that's what it meant to receive him. It 
meant to listen to him, to, so that his words took up more mental space in your mind. And that's what Jesus indicates is necessary to become a child. So the event can be baptism, receiving Christ, or sometimes it doesn't have to be an event. The more important thing is it's not just about receiving, it's remaining. That's the deal. That's the deal. And the change that comes from remaining. How, does, how is salvation experienced? By believing Jesus and holding to his word. How is it? By tuning into Paul's teaching. Well, Paul says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. It seems that we're going to be slaved either well or poorly. How can we set free, be set free to kind of be under God's influence? It says in Romans 6, 17, and 18, thanks be to God that you, though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Um, I need to show you a word here. I'm going to point to it, I think. Yeah, where is it? This word right here, obeyed. And it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's, it, this is the word. To obey here, it comes from two words, under and listen. That's what obedience here. It's under listening. And what Paul says, you were slaves to sin, but you under listened to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And under listening is what allowed you to become free from being enslaved to sin. Paul says the same thing that Jesus says. He's saying in to the first century Christians that met in his house churches, what he's saying is, keep coming back. There's all kinds of teaching out here that will teach you all kinds of things. But Paul is saying that liberation comes from listening to the form of teaching that Jesus and Paul, their thoughts about God. And if you continued to be in a place you were making room in your mind, you were listening and talking gradually, what you listen to will change you. That's what Paul is saying. That's how we're slaved, we're set free. Uh, they needed to tune in week after week so their thinking moves from being God's slaves to being God's sons and daughters. Why do you need to come to church? I really want to be very careful here. Because God will hate it if you, that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. Naturally, we relate to God as a slave master. That's wrong. It's not the truth. And what we're to do is come to a place where he's not a slave master, where we hear him talked about as a father, as a new covenant God. And if we let that into our minds week after week, that understanding of him will soften something inside. 
It will transform us and it will save us progressively. That's what he's saying. Um, Why is remaining so crucial? The last point. Why is salvation? How is salvation experienced? By beholding new covenant glory. It says he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills and the spirit gives life. Whatever you know about the spirit of God, the spirit of God influences us by drawing our attention to the new covenant. The letter kills. That's the old covenant. The Spirit gives life. That's the new covenant. So if you want to be influenced by the Spirit, go to a place that will talk about and help you understand what the new covenant is all about and how to live by it, because that's what the Spirit uses. That's what Paul says. Focusing on old covenant glory, if you think that God is saying to you, believe and you'll be blessed, disobey and you'll be cursed, that's going to kill you spiritually. It's going to create sinful passions, which are going to lead to sinful desires and sinful actions. And so what's the solution to that? Find a place that doesn't focus on old covenant glory, but focuses on new. That's what Paul seems to say. New covenant glory saves us. He says The Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is... Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is... Freedom. Freedom from what? From doing bad things. No! Freedom from slavery! Set free! That's what Paul wants for us. That's what salvation's about. It's about liberation from a hostile power. How can we experience that? Believe Jesus and hold on to his word. Tune in to Paul's teaching and behold and reflect new covenant glory. This transformation is progressive. It's a process. It happens over time. It doesn't happen quickly. Here's what salvation looks like. Then I guess it moves from The power of sin, remember what the power of sin is. The sin of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Salvation moves you from there to the power of God. Power of God, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of the new covenant. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. What is the power of God? Gospel, good news. What's the power of sin? The law. You know what happened? You know what needs to happen in our thinking? We need to understand that God is not speaking law talk to us, but He's speaking good news to us. That's what we need. And that's what, as we understand that, it changes us. We are saved. And the salvation is, can be an event that leads to a process. Um, made two point, three points then. How is salvation experienced? Um, and Micah Taylor, come on up. We're gonna we're gonna close with a song. How is salvation experienced? Believe in Jesus and hold on to His word. Tune in to Paul's form of teaching. Behold and reflect new covenant glory. Week by week by week by week. That's what we're gonna do. Keep coming back. I want to remind you that 
right out in that lawn over there. I was walking back there because I parked over there and I went through there and I saw some eggs. They were plastic. And some of them were right out. And so what I invite you to do, just head out that door right out there. And there are some eggs around. Grab one of them. One. This is how many one is. One. And now, then meet with Denise. She'll be over by the Chris, over by the picnic table. Now, let's stand for closing prayer. Uh, thank you for the plan of salvation and um, for all that it means. Thanks for the chance we have to be able to learn about your word. Thanks for the fact that it's been preserved for us and so we can talk about it. We can understand. We get Paul's letters. We got Jesus' words. Thanks for that. So I pray that little by little, over time, we'd understand them more and more. And as we do so, they would liberate us. And we would find ourselves thinking more like a, as the song indicated, uh, not being a slave to fear, but being child, children of God. Thanks for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.